Okay, welcome aboard once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Once again, ranting at you on the evening of December 10th from my uh, <clears throat> apartment in the uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan. And uh, I'm ranting about the obvious tonight, but maybe it isn't really obvious enough. It is to my mind, a disgraceful failure of the progressive forces in the United States that Stop the Steal has become a viral hashtag on the right. But Stop the Coup has not become a viral hashtag on the left. People are in such denial about the situation. And I really think that it's uh, because, in large part, uh, even, you know, the most cynical amongst us are so thoroughly indoctrinated in the propaganda of American exceptionalism and the notion that it can't happen here. And I acknowledge that it never has happened here, that we've never actually had a coup d'etat in the United States. We've never had a period of military rule and for better or for worse, you know, for everything we've been through in this country with, you know, civil war and slavery and systemic racism and foreign imperialism, et cetera, et cetera, we still have a democratic culture, <clears throat> a double standard democratic culture, which people have been struggling to make more inclusive and more truly democratic over the centuries. But nonetheless, at least among the elites, a democratic culture, <clears throat> you know, you go back to the roots of, Western democracy, such as it is, you know, I mean, people love to, uh, particularly, you know, the founders of the American Republic, you know, love to invoke um, Greece and Rome, which were quote unquote democracies and also slave states, which is what the United States was. But uh, eventually, uh, you know, Greece and Rome succumbed to, uh, you know, outright tyranny in the form of uh, Alexander and then the Caesars. And there's a certain sense, uh, almost of inevitability to it, if you're taking the very, very long picture. Of course, with Greece and Rome, we're talking about a much longer time frame than uh, American democracy, which has only been around for two centuries and change, right? And, you know, there was the famous words from Benjamin Franklin after the Constitutional Convention, and they famously asked him, uh, you know, what, what kind of government have you crafted? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. Well, we are facing the biggest test now, I would argue, certain, the biggest test since 1861, at least, we are facing now. So I, again, I acknowledge American exceptionalism gets a voice. It gets a vote. It isn't like there's nothing to it. There is something to it, okay? But it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. The fact that it hasn't happened here doesn't mean that it can't happen here. And, you know, the actions that we take now are going to determine whether, in fact, it is going to happen here anytime soon. And, you know, just falling back on, on American exceptionalism and the notion that, it, you know, it, it, it's never happened here, therefore it can't, is just going to, you know, give us a sense of complacency, which is going to make it more likely to happen here. Thank you very much. On the last rant that I did, it was just before the election, and I was urging you all to just, you know, hold your noses and vote for Biden. And uh, I'm certainly glad that he won. But I also have to emphasize that the greatest danger 
comes now. Now, there was a certain sense of, uh, you know, relief and elation immediately after the election. But, uh, you know, now a few weeks have gone by, and if you're paying attention to the news, it strikes me as rather deluded at this point to assume that Biden is, in fact, going to take office on January 20th. I mean, let's just go over some of the, the recent headlines here. Texas has now been joined by 17 other so-called red states in what the media account I'm reading from calls its long shot Supreme Court lawsuit to try to overturn Donald Trump's election defeat. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton launched legal action against Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, which were all won by Joe Biden as he claimed the White House. The 17 states, all of which supported the outgoing president, I now filed an amicus brief in support of the case to throw out Mr. Biden's wins in those four states. Mr. Paxton claims that the COVID-related changes to election procedures in the states violated federal law, and he wants the Supreme Court to block those states in the Electoral College. And yes, it was just a few days ago that the Supreme Court laughed a similar challenge out of court concerning Pennsylvania. Even all of, uh, you know, Trump's appointees to the Supreme Court, they just issued this terse statement basically saying, get lost, to put it in the vernacular. So my fear is not that um, they are going to prevail. Let me emphasize this. My fear is not that they are going to prevail in this legal effort. That's not my point. My point is that this is indicative of how the political lines are being drawn. And the notion that, the, you know, the Republicans have blinked and thrown in the towel is just demonstrably untrue, which is what everybody was saying after finally the, um, what was it, about a week ago now? More like, uh, no, going on two weeks ago now, the General Services Administration finally, you know, officially initiated the transition process. And everybody was saying, oh, Trump has blinked and he's accepting Biden's victory. Wrong. The head of the General Services Administration, Emily Murphy, acted unilaterally. And if you look at Trump's actions since then, it's quite clear that no, he has not blinked and he is not accepting Biden's victory. And what began as, uh, you know, Trump's plan A, as it were, which was to, uh, you know, uh, pull off a judicial coup, so to speak, to keep everything um, gummed up with uh, litigation and recounts and everything until December 14th, when the Electoral College is scheduled to meet. Well, you know, once again, <laughs> we have, it seems, a uh, even at this late date, we have an independent judiciary in this country. This is a credit to... Uh, the uh, political culture, the democratic political culture of the United States, the judicial coup is not working. But now what you see starting to happen is that it's starting to bleed into plan B, which is the more traditional coup. Pl the plan A, the judicial coup, is now starting to bleed into plan B, which is like the more traditional coup, the coup coup, so to speak. <laughs> um, <clears throat> an actual military coup, a coup d'etat on the classical model, without adjectives. All right, and there is an angry, increasingly extremist 
right-wing base which is mobilizing in support of Trump, both over the election and, uh, you know, in backlash against um, the common sense measures which are being urged upon us to contain COVID-19. Reading from the Daily News here, anti-mask protesters in Idaho overwhelmed cops, forced cancellation of public health meeting. This was December 9th. Idaho Public Health Commissioners had to shut down their meeting and scramble home because of coordinated protests across the Boise area. The commissioners tried to meet Tuesday to address the COVID-19 pandemic, but were met with fierce resistance from anti-mask protesters, the Idaho statesman reported. The anti-maskers gathered outside the public health building in downtown Boise and at commissioners' houses across the city, according to the Boise police. The cops planned for a protest at the health building, but still believed officers would not be able to maintain public order, the press release said. Along with Boise Mayor Lauren McLean, they asked the commissioners to postpone the meeting. One health official, Diana Laciando, interrupted the meeting in tears because protesters outside her home were threatening her family, the Associated Press reported. My 12-year-old son is home right now, and there are protesters banging outside the door, she said. And then from the Associated Press, today, just two days later, also Dateline Boise, Idaho, Boise police are investigating after the Idaho Anne Frank Human Rights Memorial. The only Anne Frank Memorial in the United States was defaced by swastika stickers earlier this week. The stickers, which included the words, we are everywhere, quote-unquote, as well as the Nazi insignia, were discovered Tuesday morning by a visitor to the memorial in downtown Boise. The Wasmuth Center for Human Rights maintains the memorial, which includes a life-size bronze statue of Anne Frank. The statue depicts Frank holding her diary and peering out the window of the secret annex in which she and her family spent 761 days hiding from the Nazis before they were found out and sent to concentration camps in 1944. One of the nine swastika stickers was stuck to the diary, and another was pasted to a statue representing the spiral of injustice intended to show how hateful language can lead to discrimination, violence, and attempts to eliminate disadvantaged groups. Another was posted over a photo showing the face of Bill Wasmuth, a Catholic priest from northern Idaho, who left the priesthood to focus on fighting white supremacists and the Aryan nations, a neo-Nazi group that at the time was based in northern Idaho. Wasmuth died in 2002. And yeah, I certainly, you know, viewed it as a a victory when finally, due to public pressure, uh, the Aryan nations were forced to close down their their compound in Idaho. But uh, it seems like their uh, ilk, shall we say, are back for revenge. And I hardly think that it's uh, coincidental that this happened. Well, let's see if I'm reading about it today and it happened a couple of days ago. It may have actually happened the same day as the anti-mask protest in Boise. From National Public Radio, December 7th, Michigan Secretary of State says armed protesters descended on her home Saturday. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson says dozens of armed protesters descended on her home Saturday night using megaphones to disrupt what had been a quiet evening with her young son, 
It was meant to intimidate her, Benson said, adding that it didn't work. The crowd was made up of people angry over President Trump's election loss. They shouted and chanted slogans outside Benson's house in a Detroit neighborhood, echoing conspiracy theories about the November 3rd voting process. Quote, as my four-year-old son and I were finishing up decorating the house for Christmas on Saturday night, and he was about to sit down to watch how the Grinch stole Christmas, dozens of armed individuals stood outside my home shouting obscenities and chanting at the bullhorns in the dark of night, Benson said in a statement. <laughs> well, how appropriate. Talk about the Grinch stealing Christmas, huh? They targeted me in my role as Michigan's chief elections officer, Benson said. Okay, now, you can argue that this is just a mere rabble, even if there's a lot of them. They aren't really organized, and there is not, you know, any structure of um, command which could actually be harnessed. We aren't quite at the brown shirts stage of the game, but we could be getting there. And that kind of uh, command apparatus, as we might say, may be coming together right now, behind closed doors, as it were. Former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who was controversially pardoned by President Trump <coughs> a couple of weeks ago, just retweeted a call for the White House to declare martial law and rerun last month's presidential election. The appeal, made by an Ohio nonprofit called the We the People Convention, in a uh, paid advertisement in the Washington Times on December 1st, urged the president to declare, quote, limited martial law, end quote, in order to hold a new election. The advert cited <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus during the Civil War as precedent, adding, quote, then as now, a president with courage and determination was needed to preserve the Union, end Quote. Now, the chutzpah of these people invoking Lincoln, hopefully I don't have to elaborate on that. I mean, you can argue that Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus was not his finest hour. But uh, in terms of, you know, how the politics are breaking down here, as we are potentially approaching another 1861-type situation, you know, these people are on the exact opposite side of the side that Lincoln was on. I mean, Lincoln stood in the context of his day, okay? for social progress, and the other side stood for white supremacy and slavery. And obviously, you know, these yahoos who are now rabble-rousing around Trump are the inheritors of the Confederacy, and that's obvious from the fact that they waved the stars and bars, as well as the swastika. Okay, while all this is going on, there is a purge underway at the Defense Department which is certainly an odd thing to undertake in the lame duck period, if you really are planning on ceding power, and is clearly aimed at getting the armed forces on Trump's side. Defense Secretary Mark Esper was fired back on November 9th, replaced by Christopher Miller, formerly director of the uh, National Counterterrorism Center, but this was just the first blow. Among those who have been vertiginously promoted since then, by which I mean taken from uh, the mid-level ranks and just, you know, leapfrogging all the way up to the brass, is one uh, Brigadier General Anthony Tata, the new Pentagon policy director, 
who spent the past four years shilling for Trump as a Fox News commentator and notoriously baiting Obama as a Muslim terrorist. Quote, unquote, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who is now a senior advisor to Acting Secretary Miller, is another ultra-hardliner who has advocated instituting martial law at the U.S.-Mexico border and for the Border Patrol to, quote, shoot people to deter illegal crossings. Okay, this is even more interesting. The White House has nominated, which means this one is actually being sent before the Senate, one Scott O'Grady, the Air Force pilot who was shot down over Bosnia in 1995 to be Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, who also headed up a group called Veterans for Trump during the campaign, called uh, Barack Obama, and some actually some Pentagon generals, quote-unquote, sworn socialists, unquote, and has basically, you know, been spreading the same uh, outlandish election conspiracy theories. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know, is the Senate going to vote on this nomination between now and uh, the scheduled, shall we say, inauguration on January 20th? Interesting question. Certainly going to be one to watch. And uh, if he, in fact, is uh, confirmed, that's going to be a bad sign. But the really fatal sign is going to be if Mark Miley, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is removed. Because he seems to be the last man standing from the old regime among the Pentagon brass at this point. And he, like Esper, had actually you know, been on the scene during the June 1st assault on protesters in Lafayette Square by National Guard and military police troops, but later had the guts and humility to apologize and say, quote, I should not have been there. And Esper also sort of, you know, walked back that one and acknowledged that they had gone too far. Esper has been removed. When Miley goes, we may have crossed the proverbial Rubicon. And what I'm really concerned about is that in addition to the United States itself being deeply in crisis, there's also an international context here. In late November, of course, Iran's top nuclear scientist, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, was assassinated in what uh, appears to have been a uh, a targeted assassination uh, ambush on his vehicle by unidentified gunmen or perhaps even some kind of uh, remotely operated uh, robot vehicle. Uncertain, you know, mounted with a machine gun. Very ominous. Uh, widely assumed to have been carried out by Israel. In the immediate aftermath of that, the U.S. sent a squadron of B-52 Stratofortress bombers to the Persian Gulf, where they joined with um, Saudi, United Arab Emirates, and Bahraini warplanes to uh, fly a mission over the Gulf, steering you know just outside of Iranian airspace in a clear warning. Now, ostensibly, you know, this is to uh, intimidate Iran out of undertaking any kind of retaliation against Israel for the slaying of their top scientist. But one can't help but wonder if the killing of Fakhrizadeh was intended to elicit a reaction from Iran. And if with this, uh, you know, stratofortress stunt, 
Trump wasn't trolling for a Gulf of Tonkin incident, if you get my drift. Now, recall that over the summer, Trump actually broached postponement of the election under the pretext of the COVID-19 pandemic. His plan B could be postponement or cancellation of the presidential transition under the pretext of a world crisis of his own making. And please do not dismiss the reality here, okay, that until, at least until January 20th, Trump is the commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces. All he has to do is to give the order, and the generals are bound to carry it out. Okay, now we may hope that even after this purge that he has undertaken at the Pentagon over the past weeks, that the generals will still remember the Nuremberg Code and understand that they are not obliged to carry out illegal orders. Just as we may hope, even the troops and the grunts will refuse to obey orders for domestic repression, we may hope that even the brass will refuse to obey orders to plunge the world into war. But once again, that's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Please let's not be glib about what a big deal it is for military personnel to buck the chain of command and potentially face court-martial or worse. Everything in their training and indoctrination goes against that. But it may be our only hope that Trump is not going to attempt the coup, which he is quite evidently preparing, because he is not confident that the armed forces, and for that matter, the entire rest of the federal bureaucracy, have got his back. And this is where you and me come in. Because the more we raise the alarm about the reality that Trump is preparing a coup, the more likely it will be that the armed forces and federal bureaucracy will have the backbone and the courage to say no to him, and the less likely it will be that there will actually be a coup. And I'm going to quote once again before I sign off from the report that was issued over the summer by a newly formed group called the Transition Integrity Project, which was established to assess the looming dilemma. And they warned in their report that, quote, a show of numbers in the streets and actions in the streets may be decisive factors in determining what the public perceives as a just and legitimate outcome, end quote. So I have to ask again, why is everybody so quiet? The clearer that we, Americans of progressive inclination, make it, that we are having none of this, the more likely it will be that the rational elements around Trump, if there are any left at this point, will be able to get through to him, and the troops and even the generals will find the courage to disobey his orders. Now, I will be perfectly happy. I will be overjoyed to have everybody laugh at me and tell me that I'm a paranoid freak come January 20th when Biden takes office. But meanwhile, I'm going to be raising the alarm that through our silence and complacency, we are going to make that outcome less likely and be complicit with Trump's intended coup d'etat. 
So just like Stop the Steal is a popular hashtag on the right, we have to make Stop the Coup a popular hashtag on the left. Immediately. We have just, what, six weeks to go. We have to raise an unequivocal voice. Urgently. Making it clear that, no, we are not going to have this. Be in touch and let me know what you think. And stay tuned. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything I say on this show is spelled out and documented and hyperlinked. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time. <laughs>